Okay, welcome back to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, Architect. As always, I want to take the time now to thank you all for joining me today in this podcast series where we talk through the experience of collaborating with an architect and what's involved in realizing an architectural project. We talk through the thinking behind the design of spaces and places. And today, I'm going to discuss design consideration in regards to openings, the design of openings, windows or doors. In this case, we're going to focus on windows. Now, this is a huge task, a huge design undertaking. But before that, I want to frame the context. I'm going to be talking about openings in regards to competing design factors that come up in the development of our projects. In the case of openings, the requirement for the opening, the window or the door, to comply with an aspect of the Building Code of Australia, whilst adhering to what I think would be a very common vision or aspect of a client brief. I think most clients would have an expectation that the windows or the doors in an opening can do something I'm going to discuss. So we're talking about conflicting parameters, parameters that don't lend themselves to each other. They don't flow well. You put them next to each other and you think, wow, I've got to respond to both of these points, but they don't talk very well to each other and how we deal with that. And I'm doing that because we're at a stage in the overall realization of a project where the building code of Australia comes to the fore. That is that we, the design team, need to declare, need to certify that our design complies with relevant aspects of the Building Code of Australia. This stage is referred to as the Construction Certificate, the CC. It's the second last stage of what we call core architectural services, standard services provided by an architect in Australia as of 2022. And in fact, as it sounds, it's the last stage before construction can start. It's the stage where we're telling an authority, what we call a principal certifying authority, what we want the builder to build and how that complies with the Building Code of Australia. And once we have this information as documentation, we submit that, they assess it and provide a certificate that unlocks construction. Now, there's a lot to discuss there. I don't wanna go into that in detail, except to quickly say, that we've actually already done a lot of this. We've already described the design and developed the design to a level of detail sufficient for someone to understand what we want the builder to build. We did that for the builder. We can't build without a builder. I don't recommend building with a builder even though you might have found one unless that builder tells you how much it's going to cost to build the building and how long it's going to take. And we've done that by defining the design to that detail at the tender stage. And if the tender price and time works for the client, meets the client expectation, we go ahead. If not, we negotiate, value engineer, reduce scope, the scope of works, reduce the quality of finishes, etc., until things align with client expectations. However, if we get there, we use 
information from the builder, for example, insurances, bundle that together, submit that to the certifying authority on top of design certificates. So we've done a lot of the work already. Now we're adding design certificates. Now, as I said, I don't want to talk about that process any further. The only thing I maybe want to add is that what we're going to be looking at is the design consideration that goes into the analysis of the design against the requirements of the Building Code of Australia. This is a design exercise. I don't see them necessarily as separate. I don't see any real activity as separate, as I've said multiple times during this podcast series. The Building Code of Australia, an analysis of that against the design, is a design exercise. It's not that design stops and now we review compliance. They're done in parallel. And that leads me to my next point. Even though this is the stage where we're declaring, we're certifying, it's not the first time we're reviewing the requirements of the Building Code of Australia against the design. We've been doing that from the beginning. This is the stage though, and this is going to sound extreme language, where we're going to prove it. Someone has asked us to prove it. Anyway, back to openings and conflicting parameters. When I say openings, what do I mean? Well, I mean holes in the exterior of our building, in the shell, in the walls. Now, these holes, when we fill them with windows, glazed windows, glazed doors, these shape how the building presents to the public or how it presents to the private rear open space of a residential property or similar property. How within the space, that space connects to the outside. And when we're talking about this design consideration, and I'm stating that it's a huge undertaking, I'm talking about the consideration of things like the size of the opening, how high it is, how wide it is in the room, the wall that it's on, where's the position? Is it centered on that wall, justified to the top left, top right? Is it full height? When we're talking about it as a window or a glazed door, What's the type? How does it operate? How do we open it? What are the divisions? Is it a hybrid, a one window type versus something else? If we're conscious of the orientation, how do we shade it? How do we reduce the amount of heat? How do we deal with heat loss? How do we ventilate? Or how do we pick the window based on the ventilation? How do we deal with in Australia things like insect screens, privacy, how does it interface with the internal wall lining or the exterior? And this will be the focus today. How do we deal with fall prevention? That is, how do we stop or reduce the likelihood? And in the case of the Building Code of Australia, prevent through design fall prevention out of a window. Now, briefly, my background origin story with openings. And just to put things in context, this is something near and dear to me. I'm currently teaching a design studio where we're looking at natural lighting through openings. Anyway, on the topic of design, sorry, on the topic of teaching, when I was a student, as I've mentioned in a previous podcast, each year as my education went on and right through to my career, I found my world would unravel still happens to a certain extent. However, I've developed an ability to turn it off every now and then, to look past 
design responses that I think aren't as good as they could be. But when I was a student, maybe less mature, I found myself realizing that things that I thought were okay or elegant or whatever good means, good designs, suddenly I saw as maybe not as good as they could be. And that made me socially awkward out in events where I'd go to a restaurant and I'd say, why'd they use that light or what furniture is this or look at that first floor edition or something along those lines. And one of those examples is how I responded to two large window openings in the main living dining space to the house I grew up in. And it was in regards to glazing bars that were used on those windows. Now, just to put this in a little bit more, give you a little bit more context. These openings were big, or rather big, 2.7 maybe meters high, three or so meters long, one in the living room, one in the dining room. It was an open plan kitchen, sorry, living dining room. However, it had glazing bars. Now, glazing bars had a place a long time ago because technically we couldn't build glass thick enough to be able to span the size of the window where the glass was being inserted. So say you had a one by one meter window, glass couldn't span one meter, and so we divided it. We might have divided it into four. So it was four 500 by 500 millimeters, half a meter squares with glazing bars. So, you know, before you put this all together, you'd have four panels of glass that you put up and were supported by these timber glazing bars that you would see in timber frame windows, other window types as well. And it might have even divided more than that. You might have had more than four. You might have divided it again. Either way, the glass wasn't thick enough to be able to span. And I get that over time, people respond to this not because of development in technology that we can now have glass that can span bigger, but it has a particular look, a particular nostalgic or heritage feel. Certainly makes sense on heritage buildings to look at glazing bars, and I'm not dismissing people that think that they should be on other projects. This is more just to put things in context in regards to my response to openings as I learnt more about architecture. Uh, I went home one day in my year that I was working and I noticed these glazing bars and I thought, oh, that's interesting. We have glazing bars at home. And I realized that the glazing bars weren't a support for thin glass that was spanning the most it could span. They're actually stuck on to the glass, to the inside face of the glass. A bit of metal that was, you know, couple of centimeters wide and very, very thin, but glued onto the glass. The glass was, if we use that reference, one meter wide by one meter tall, but the glazing bars were stuck on. They served no purpose. And I couldn't deal with this and I pulled them off. Mum asked what I was doing. I said, these glazing bars are terrible. They've got to go. The window opening, the extent of outlook will be improved dramatically if we get rid of it. Mum was okay with that, but I dare say that she thought, what is he doing? Anyway, I removed them. And that's my origin story in regards to openings. It's one of the first encounters I had in regards to openings right through to today where 
As I said, it's a huge undertaking and I actually have a project, an apartment block that is 10 stories high, 30 odd apartments, sorry, nine stories high, 30 odd apartments, heritage sensitive, over a hundred years old. And my role is to look at replacing all the windows. What's the design selection? What window system are we going to use? How does it meet the requirements of the Building Code of Australia? All those things I discussed. That is the design project. I have a small other thing to look at, but essentially the bigger role is looking at the replacement of the windows to all the openings in this heritage sensitive building that had timber frame double hung windows to most of the apartments that were the original windows and they have, they've seen their day, their lifespan, they've reached the end of their lifespan. Now some owners have replaced them. And so you've got this facade, this overall look that is not necessarily consistent. And that's what we're now looking at. Anyway, competing things. Let's look at what the Building Code of Australia says in regards to fall prevention. Now, to be clear, this is not an episode on fall prevention. It is using fall prevention in the context, sorry, as an example of these competing design parameters and consideration that needs to occur at this particular stage. I could talk about many other aspects of openings and many other aspects of the Building Code of Australia. But if we if we just look at what the requirement is, around 2012, 2013, from memory, I was working on some projects where we had to look at this change, quite a big change to the Building Code of Australia, that said for a bedroom and an early childhood learning center, if that bedroom or space was two meters or more from the outside space, so if there was a hole in the wall to that room and you fell through that hole, would you fall two meters to a driveway, to the front yard, to the rear yard, whatever it might be. Then from floor level to 1.7 meters above floor level, which for most of us is either above head height, at head height, or slightly below head height, basically the height of everyone or every adult, most adults, in that range, there can be no opening in the window bigger than 125 millimeters, 12.5 centimeters. So in regards to competing design parameters, I would say that there's an expectation, an almost unwritten expectation in client vision. Some clients have made this clear to me, and I appreciate that because how do you know it goes without saying. However, for me, it almost goes without saying that you have an opening and you wanna maximize the open area for ventilation. However, the Building Code of Australia is saying actually from zero to 1.7 above floor level, it needs to be limited to 12.5 centimeters, 125 millimeters. Now, an exception is that if you have a screen, a barrier that meets the requirements for a barrier outside the window, then you can do whatever you want from zero to 1.7 meters. However, it's not a common response or doesn't work for all situations to have a barrier. So it's something to work through. Now, just in terms of what this means, let's just think about this in context. When you think about ventilation and you think about being in a room, you know, if you're standing, the hope is that the ventilation, the relief in humid days or whatever that you get from flowing air is touching your body. 
So it is where you're standing. It's not above head height. And in a bedroom, you're not always standing. Sure, people might be working from their desk, cleaning their bedroom, having a conference call, phone call, whatever. But a lot of the time in our bedroom, we're asleep. We might be sitting and doing a podcast because we're working from home. We might be doing work from home at a study. We might be playing on the floor with kids, with pets, doing stretches, whatever. And we're not getting the benefit of a big opening providing ventilation where we're sitting, standing, working, whatever. It's the equivalent of, this is an extreme example. It's the equivalent of if someone gave you a cylinder, a clear glass perspex cylinder, and somehow you're able, and if it's glass, it would be quite heavy, but say it's 1.7 high and you slot it over your, your body or you lower yourself into this glass tube that's, you know, big enough for you to go in. And in that glass tube for the full height of, of, of your, your body, there's only a slot opening of 125 millimeters. It can be feet, knees, hips, whatever. But it's 125. And imagine you went to a deck, a balcony, into a park where you know there's airflow. You can see trees moving and you know that there is that opportunity. However, you're only getting 125 millimeters of it. You might feel a little bit duped. You might feel that there's missed opportunity. Now, I really want to be clear here that this is not a criticism of the requirement. The requirement makes absolute sense. I have children myself. I'm conscious of, you know, working, uh, being in spaces that are up high. Uh, it, was, it came about because too many children had fallen out of bedrooms or early childhood learning centers, and that's horrible. So I completely support and I'm on board with this requirement. I'm not criticizing the requirement. I'm using it as an example to show the conflict of parameters that we have to work through. And you can see in that example. Now, you might have an opportunity because remember, we can do 12.5 at lower level and bigger at upper level. Maybe you have a unique situation where you've got windows on opposite walls ideally directly opposite walls. This happens in main bedrooms, rare that it happens in secondary bedrooms. But if you have that, you could have a situation where on one side is the inlet, and that could be at low level. And on one side is the outlet, and that can be above 1.7, and you will be getting direct, fairly nicely distributed airflow going from the smaller inlet to the larger outlet. And that will be going that will be landing where you want it to land. And of course, that will also happen if you have window and window on both sides at 125 high. It's just the extent of the ventilation is only quite low. So, you know, if it was at chest, it's, you know, potentially washing your chest, but it's not hitting your head or other parts of your body necessarily. However, it's unusual to have windows on opposite walls. Normally a bedroom, one, one opening, in the bedroom, other side is for the bed, for the robe, for the wall that provides a door to give access to the corridor. Anyway, so let's let's work through this. So what options do we have to deal with this conflict, these competing terms? And remember, we're trying to say, okay, we want to review this design vision, this client vision of maximizing ventilation and see what options we have to do that and make things comply with the Building Code of Australia requirement for fall prevention. I'm going to group three windows. I'm going to group them into windows that don't comply with this requirement by default, 
windows that almost complied by default and group three is going to be a talking point that's going to wrap things up and is going to be a nice concluding point that will link back to that origin story I told about the windows I grew up with. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are examples of windows I've worked with. I welcome someone to say, you forgot this window, that's fine. However, group one, these are windows that don't comply with this requirement by default. Awning, hopper, casement, horizontal sliding, bifold and face sliding. Now this exercise, by the way, is the exact exercise I worked through for the design of this project in metropolitan Sydney, this nine-story apartment building. What options do we have? Okay, let's talk about awning, hopper, casement together because they actually operate the same way. We just rotate them 90 degrees to compare the difference. An awning you could think of as comparable to a car boot, a hatchback car boot in the way it pops up. Close to 90 degrees if you've got hydraulic lift uh, arms, though often it's closer to 35, 40 degrees. That's the way an awning window works. Hopper's the same, but rotated 180 degrees. So think of an awning window upside down, opens towards the top. Awning window opens towards the bottom. Casement window is the same, but at 90 degrees. So think of it similar to an internal door opening like that. Horizontal sliding, as it sounds, is a window that slides on the horizontal. Now let's just stay with these four. So horizontal sliding, three meter wide opening, 50% of it, 1.5 meter width, could potentially be open. However, none of them you can appreciate would comply with this requirement by default. If they all open to the maximum that they could open, they would be substantially bigger than the minimum allowed under fall prevention. Now we could work around that by saying, all right, let's have a situation where we have a wraparound balcony to the upper level. And then the height difference is dealt with. It's not two meters, it's barely a step, if even that. So then we can have any of those. We could also have a screen to the outside. We could also look at a situation where we divide the height of the window into two. So let's think about this in context. And this was applicable to the apartment block project I was looking at. Bedroom windows rarely go to floor level. I'm not saying they never go to floor level or that that is an approach that's never adopted. However, it's rare because we want the opportunity to be able to furnish the section of wall below the window with a bed, a desk, or similar. So that means they start at about one meter above floor level, roughly. And from there up, the minimum ceiling height for a bedroom under the Building Code of Australia, this is the minimum, not the preferred, not the ideal, not the best, is 2.4 meters. So if we think about that, that's a 1.4 meter high opening. Half of that needs to have a restrictive device to limit the opening in the case of these examples to 125 millimeters. But the other half, the top 700, we can open as much as we want. So we could look at doing these four, horizontal sliding is gonna be a bit confusing to think about, but we could look at these, four, these three, awning, hopper, casement, and we could divide this 1.4 height such that the bottom half opens 125 and the top half opens whatever we like. Now we have to work through as an exercise how we feel in the space or in the public domain looking at these windows where one part opens a little bit, one part opens a bit more.
What does that mean? How does that eccentricity, that imbalance look? In this case, we thought it didn't really make sense. There were a couple of openings that were quite small, maybe one meter by one meter, where we thought awning might make sense. Granted, we have limitation. However, we have to work through that. Horizontal sliding, you can do the division. So 700 and go whatever length horizontally you want. Top 700, same. The top can open 50%. The bottom can open only 125. How does that look? Not a situation we wanted to develop in this case. And you're breaking up the overall height of the window with these divisions. A bifold and face sliding are almost obviously not a, not a way forward. Bifold means that it's folding in two spots. Buyers in two. The first fold is the hinge where it connects to the frame. The second is some other point where it folds again. So let's take a bedroom width of three meters. Under the apartment design guide, the minimum clearance for a bedroom is three by three meters. So say we had a three meter width and we divide that three meters by three. So you've got one meter width, one meter width, one meter width, 1.4 high. It hinges on one side, folds one meter from that, folds another one meter from that, and you've got this concertina, you know, Z profile or scissor profile in plan effect. And what that means is you get 100% of the opening. So when it's open, it's really open. <laughs> you could have face lighting, which is a similar concept in terms of the effect of getting the maximum amount of opening. And what it means is you get the whole window and you slide it horizontally past the structural opening in front of the facade to the right or left of the window. And do this for vertical sliding as window, uh, vertical sliding as well. However, you can see that both bifold and face sliding, whilst incredible results, would result incredible result in terms of opening. The effect would be an opening that doesn't meet the requirements of the Building Code of Australia in regards to fall prevention. So they're not an option unless we have some barrier or reduce the height difference. Group two is a window type that complies by default. Sorry, I have to say that if I, if I overemphasize this, I apologize. Awning, hopper, casement, none of those I'm discrediting as window types. I'm reviewing them in the context of this requirement and what we would have to do to make them comply. I've used awning windows before, casements, horizontal sliding, most definitely bifold face sliding. So I'm not saying that these are windows that are problematic. I'm reviewing them against this design requirement. And in this case, we couldn't look at any other than awning and appreciate that it could only open so much for this apartment block. Group two are windows that comply by default and they are louvers, glass louver windows. Now, if you think about this famous 1.4 meter height, and I say famous because I keep using it as an example, Across that height, you could divide that by 10. So you get 140 high blades, which is not the default. There are sizes for the glass blades. I always forget them. But you might have 10 blades across that height or thereabouts. Maybe you have 12, I can't remember the height. And when they close, they overlap. So it's a busier effect outlook compared to the other examples when they're closed, say they were the 1.4 high, you'd have a fixed bit of glass 
within the operable window that would be close to 1.4 high. Whereas the louvers, each blade is 100, 120, 150 high. And when they overlap closed, you get a little bit of, you get a tone, a toning, sorry, not a toning, a tinted effect. They're still transparent, but because it's a layer of glass overlapping a layer of glass, you have a little bit of a, it, it looks a little bit tinted. And across the height, you really notice those lines. But the great thing in regards to this issue of fall prevention is when the windows open, they rotate around 80 or so degrees, you have a barrier. You have the glass, the edge of the glass that would stop fall out of that window. Now, it sounds by default like this is a potential winner and you get close to 99% of the opening that could be used when they're open as ventilation. However, Breezeway, who manufacture glass louvers, there may be other companies, their system to comply with this component of the Building Code of Australia is called the Stronghold System, which means that the blades, the glass blades, are mechanically fixed into the pockets that rotate them. So that if you were to fall against the glass, the glass won't pop out. Whereas the normal louver system, you can remove the glass for practical reasons, which makes sense. If the glass shatters or you need to clean the glass and don't laugh at this, I have a client that pulled all the glass blades out of their windows and will put them through the dishwasher. They didn't have to look at fall prevention it makes sense that that's available. However, for the stronghold system to make it comply with this requirement, they're mechanically fixed in. So louvers. Now, louvers be conscious in this case of how busy the outlook was. Now this apartment has views to the city, has views to the harbor, and we want it as uninterrupted an outlook as possible. And one of the things we looked at, which is a, not a unique response, a lot of architects look at doing this is to say think of a bedroom that's three meters wide and let's have an opening that's three meters wide and let's dedicate one third to the louver one meter and then the balance two thirds so 66.667 percent of the width could be fixed glass and so the bulk of the opening that is filled with a window is uninterrupted clear glass the last third is louvers that we open when we want to get maximum ventilation and that is an elegant response that combines the requirement to have uninterrupted outlook with the expectation to have the maximum available ventilation. That's an option. Anyway, louvers potentially comply by default. And the last group is my talking point. It actually is still group one, as in it's a type that doesn't comply by default. However, I wanted to talk about it because ultimately it will link back to my origin story and is the window system we looked at using for this apartment block. And it's quite a popular system at the moment, has been for a long time actually. And it's called a double hung window. Now, a normal double hung window, that is a traditional double hung window, would not comply and when I say double hung, you could think of it as a vertical sliding window. So window towards the top, window towards the bottom. You pull the bottom up to get ventilation. You pull the bottom down to get ventilation. They meet towards the middle. 
and you've got a quarter of the potential opening towards the top, a quarter of the potential opening towards the bottom, add the two together, you've got 50% opening. Now you can see for that 1.4 meter height, by default, that would not comply. The other thing to note is that you've got to operate them separately. Pull the bottom up, and then if you want the bottom down, pull it down. This is a classic window system that in fact is the window system in this apartment block, timber framed, double hung. Double hung means that the top and the bottom window, portion of the window, are hung and can operate. You can have single hung where only one of them operate. I've never specified that or designed a project that has that, but it's available. Anyway, you can do that in timber, you can do that in aluminium. However, in this case, we wanted to look at using what's called a sashless window system. And what that means is this client vision, in this case, of having the best available view outlook from the apartment as possible, suggests that we want uninterrupted glazing from sill height, the bottom of the window, to head height. So where the windows meet, we wanted an opportunity to have no material, I'm sorry, not no material, to no solid, to make that transparent. And a window system out there does that. It's called the Anita Sashless Window, which as far as I know, came out around 2000, close to 2000. Someone can fact check and correct me there. I welcome that. There is now a competitor called Ostview, but where the two, the top and bottom window meet, there's no solid material, as would be the case for a timber frame window or an aluminium frame window. Instead, it's glass meeting glass. Now you get a similar effect to what you get for louvers, where the glass overlaps glass and you get a little bit of tone, sorry, I keep saying toning, tinting at that point. So it's not transparent or as transparent as the rest of it, but it's far more transparent than when you have opaque material, meeting opaque material. There is a brush seal, and that has an acrylic component and a brush component, so that adds a layer of opacity. However, compared to the rest of the glass, well, it, proportionately, it's nothing compared to the overall height. And the other great thing is it's counterbalanced. So you pull the bottom up and the top automatically comes down and it doesn't stop there. The handle is acrylic, so it is translucent, close to transparent, it's not metal. So this window system almost feels like a frameless version of a traditional double hung window system. As I said, Anita came out with it first, now we have Osview. And it's quite an elegant window to operate. All of these windows in today operate far better than they did 20, 30 years ago, certainly as I remember them for my origin story. However, in regards to this requirement for fall prevention, by default, as great as the design components of that window type sound, they don't comply unless you put a restrictive device to limit the bottom to 125. But why would you do that? Because you'd limit the top to 125. And in that sense, this is possibly one of the least favorable options I've put forward, despite the great components in regards to transparency. So the path moving forward is to select what Anita call duo mode. I don't know if Ozview have a similar version. I would, I dare say they must. And what that means is that the bottom pane operates separately to the top. So you limit the bottom to one, two, five. 
you pull the top down to whatever you need or whatever you want to achieve, which if it's above 1.7 meters can be whatever you want. And unlike the awning hopper casement versions, I don't know that that imbalance, that eccentricity, or I didn't believe that eccentricity was problematic because it's glass and glass. You know, it's just so happens that the bottom maybe looks like someone didn't want to open the bottom up any more than uh, and wanted to open the top more. And so that was the favored option in the case of this. It responded to client vision, which was maximize the outlook and of course, meet the requirements of the Building Code of Australia. Double hung, sashless, counterbalanced window system, or in this case, sorry, not counterbalanced because of the requirement to meet the fall prevention, duo mode. In the case of Anita, I don't know the option available for Ausview. Now to finish this episode and to wrap up this story in regards to openings, I'm going to go back to the house I grew up in where I was asked by my mother to look at replacing those windows, which didn't have glazing bars anymore, didn't have them for a good 15, 20 years <laughs> as I unceremoniously removed them. But now they were, again, like the project I'm looking at, they were 25, maybe 30 years old, and we wanted to look at replacing them. So I suggested we replace them with this sashless system so as to maximize the extent of glazing and the outlook. And we looked at double glazing so as to help with heat loss in that space, which in winter is, is noticeable. Now, double glazing helps retain heat within a space, doesn't really help with heat load. It does something, but it's not significant or significant enough to justify the double glazing. You'd make that decision, in my opinion, based on heat retention, not blocking heat. We block heat or reduce the extent of heat load on a window. I say reduce because we don't want to do that all year round in winter and some of the cooler periods in autumn and spring. We do actually want the sun to hit those windows and provide heat to the space. However, in summer we don't. We shade that external by external means, an awning or a shading device. I could have a whole episode on that. However, in this case, we use double glazing. Double glazing for Anita does have a little bit of opaque material for the sash because it's two layers of glass meeting two layers of glass. So there is a little bit of material there. However, we still get this elegance because in this case, we didn't need to look at fall prevention. The height difference was okay. And in fact, it wasn't in a bedroom anyway, but we divided the space up from 2.7 height. We divided it into three. Bottom portion of window was fixed, then the upper two thirds was operable. So you pull the bottom or you pull the middle part of the window up and the top comes down and it's such an elegant thing to operate. I enjoy going there and operating them and looking at them and it's an older house, you know, renovated in the nineties, but originally built long before that. And the renovation in the nineties tried to stay in harmony with the original build. And it has a particular look, and that look is updated by these windows. Just the change in this window system, which is a more elegant window system than was there before, really changed the feel of those internal spaces and how it presents to the public domain. And so 
if you like, I, the space and my experience with that space came full circle. Not only did I notice that there was an element of the original windows that I felt was fake, inauthentic, non, not genuine, and responded quite violently by pulling the glazing bars off, in time I was able to replace the whole window with what I thought was a better design response. So, if you like, in extreme terms, I got my revenge. That's extreme language. No, the, the change occurred and I think it's quite an elegant and special response. And I no longer go to those windows thinking what they could be in discomfort. All right. So competing terms, that's how we work through them. What options do we ha have? How does that affect the overall design response in the context of it being an exercise in reviewing client vision? It's not done in isolation. We don't abort and say it's time to comply. Let's give up. We review it in parallel. Now, I did this in regards to openings, focusing on the idea of how openings need to comply with fall prevention under the Building Code of Australia, grouping three window systems into what we would say do not comply with this requirement by default, almost comply by default. You have to be careful how you specify them. And there I'm talking about louvers. And then group three, this talking point about these sashless windows that are counterbalanced and really have this incredible extent of transparency being the Anita sashless windows and Osview now have a version of that. All right, I hope that was useful. If you thought that would be helpful to a friend, colleague, client, consultant, please do share it. That's it from me. Thank you so much again for listening. You've been here with me listening to what is and what could be with Michael Clark Architect. See you next time.